Welcome to the Automotive Leaders Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from leading voices in the automotive world with a mission to transform this industry together. I'm your host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales with over 35 years of experience in our beloved auto industry and a commitment to empowering fellow leaders to be their best authentic selves. Stay true to yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. Today, you'll meet Carla Bilo. Carla has deep roots in the automotive industry and she shares her amazing career journey from General Motors to Nissan to the world of academia into the role that she holds today. Some interesting stories about driving a semi-truck across the country during the early part of her career when the last thing you expected to see was a young woman jumping out of the cab of a truck, right? She likes to push things to their limit. Literally, she likes to push cars to their limits, understand where the limits are. She likes to break the mold, and that is something that we most definitely have in common. And she likes to work with a blank sheet of paper. She likes to create and recreate. And I couldn't think of a better person to be heading up the car organization right now as the automotive industry stands right on the precipice of massive transformation and change. Carla Bilo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's great to have you, and I cannot wait to hear all about your background. I want to know it all right from the very beginning, where you grew up, your amazing career in this wonderful, beloved automotive industry of ours, and how you ended up leading the CAR organization, the Center for Automotive Research. So, Carla Bello, what is your story? Boy, with a lead-in like that, I hope you have a lot of time. But um, let me start in the very beginning. I was born in the Detroit area, in a, actually in a community called Ypsilanti, which is just outside of, of Ann Arbor, and grew up in a house that was probably at best 750 square feet, at least for the first five years of my life. My father was a tool and die guy, always in the automotive industry, and his father was tool and die. My grandmother was actually a Rosie the Riveter back in the day at what then turned into a GM plant. And um, my grandfather on the other side of the family was a sweeper at Ford. So, I mean, just automotive is in my blood. And if you grow up in Detroit, you have to, you know, you love cars. At least I love cars. And I grew up at a very young age, loving cars, and even thought they had a personality. So I was really, really engaged in the automotive industry. And then I started school. And it's amazing how your path can begin to change. And you start to think differently about what you want to do and what's expected of you by society. And of course, I was thinking when I started high school, I would probably be a nurse or administrative assistant or something like that. But I always really loved math and science and just did really well all the time. Um, in high school, I had a wonderful chemistry teacher who saw my capability and had two children going to General Motors Institute. And she said, I think you need to think about engineering and talk to my parents and talk to me. And before I knew it, I mean, that was the path. It was really what made a lot of sense. General Motors Institute, I mentioned earlier, you know, we, we, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I had to pay my own way. And that was one way to pay my own way through, through college. So um, I went there and then started in the automotive industry for GM, then for Nissan, and never looked back. Always working with cars, always in product development, often, much of that time on the proving ground, driving and racing around and taking cars to their handling limit. All the things I, I still love. I still love it. Put me on a proving ground and I, I can go crazy. 
And then? Um, I went to General Motors Institute and started co-oping with GM Truck and Bus, which um, doesn't exist anymore. It became, well, actually, when I started there, it was GM GMC Truck and Coach. Then it became Truck and Bus. But I started working uh, when I first graduated with my degree in mechanical engineering, started working on the big semis, the big 18-wheeler GMC Generals and Astros doing ride and handling performance. So you can only imagine, you know, the outriggers on these products, you know, the shock absorbers, they, they were huge. And then we got out of that business. So no longer working in the heavy truck business, but I did get my class two operator's license so I could go on test trips. I've driven semis across the country. Um, Only had two scary points, which I have to talk about. The first one was when I went over the Mississippi River in a semi. And when you're that high up, you don't see the guardrails. All you see is the water. And I wasn't prepared for that. It freaked me out, but uh, made it over by just looking straight ahead. And uh, the other scary point was at that point, you had to double clutch and you were shifting through 14, 16 gears. And I was going up one of the mountains in Colorado and I lost a gear. And I couldn't get the engine speed right. I just kept going slower and slower and slower. And finally, I hit the gear and got out of it. But I think at that point, I was going maybe 15 miles an hour. And I was just scared. I was never going to find the gear. I'd be on the freeway, stopped going uphill. And I thought, oh, my goodness. It was a dead of winter, too, because it was a winter test. So there was snow on the roads. And I survived it. But it was really, really shocking. And, and then the, the third thing that was really quite funny when I was driving these, these semis is when we would stop at a rest area. And Jan, I'm, I'm probably a little bigger than you, but very small as well, five feet three at best and not a very large woman. So I would get out of these big rigs and walk into these truck stops with all these burly guys. And you can imagine they'd all be talking in the you know, or out around their trucks and out comes this little thing. And uh, it just was unheard of back in those days. But, um, you know, working on those big rigs was pretty amazing. And then we went out of that business and I started working on the the big white whales, as we called them, the the urban buses. And uh from there, then every we got out of that business, I just kept getting smaller. Then I went to medium duty trucks, and then I moved into um, the M van at the time, the Astro van and and uh, Safari van, and then eventually started working on full size trucks, just the Silverados. And so I went when I first moved into the Silverado or into the, the you know the smaller uh, trucks. I looked at one of the shock absorbers and it looked like a toy, a toy part. You know, what is this thing? Because I'm used to these things, you know, being super big. And uh, so anyway, that's how my career progressed there in GM. And about that time, it was early in the 80s. And I applied for and received a GM fellowship to get my master's degree. Um, and went ahead and went on to the University of Michigan and got my master's in mechanical engineering. And I've always specialized in material science and polymeric materials because I'm kind of a geek in the chemistry lab and love that kind of thing. Um, even though I've never in my life worked in materials, <laughs> I've always worked on product. But I got my master's, went back to GM for about two years after that, and uh, this was the middle of the 80s, and it was a tough time in General Motors, and uh, decided I really needed to move on. I didn't see any opportunity there, and that's when Nissan opened their R&D center here, and I thought, how great, you know, to be part of kind of the first floor. So we were developing product and at the same time building a company. I was employee number five. We had no code of conduct. We had, you know, everything was written in Japanese and we had to suddenly start developing product. So um, I just found 
that's when I discovered, quite frankly, that if I have a blank sheet of paper job, I'm in heaven. Um, give me something that's never been done before. Tell me to take a swing at the bat and I'll, I'll, tr I'll do my darndest to do it. But don't give me a cookbook and tell me to do it this way or, or we're going to have a problem. <laughs> yeah. So that had to be quite a challenge starting with Nissan right from the very beginning. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you saw coming from more, you know, traditional American OEM type background? Oh, it was it was amazing. First of all, it wasn't just we were working on a product, but our product wasn't just Nissan's. Nissan had formed a joint venture with Ford. So the product that we were working on was the Nissan Quest Ford Villager. It was a joint small minivan product where Nissan had agreed to do the R&D and development of the product and Ford was uh, in, responsible for manufacturing that product. And we had, you know, certain volumes and agreements that, that had to be, had to be um, met. And when I got there, one of the first things was we had to establish what are the performance targets for this vehicle? What's the ride and handling going to be like? What's the noise, vibration, and harshness going to be like? What's the engine performance going to be like? The seat comfort. So we got together with the other development engineers, and we had the Nissan spec. They had their Ford spec. And what we found out was we don't talk the same language, first of all, about what defines these things. And secondly, our customers are different. And you know, our strain gauges on our bottoms are different. You know, when we when we say something is harsh in, in Nissan world, it's perfect in Ford world. So we found there was differences that we had to negotiate. It took hours sometimes to go through this. And some of the things we finally said, you know what, you're going to have to have a different spec than us on some of this. And because your customer is different. So if you want the seat comfort to be different, we'll have to have you know, different seat cushions, blah, 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 blah. But that was one of the first things that we discovered. Our customers were different. Our way of evaluating the vehicles were different. Our performance targets were different. And the ways of assessing them were different, even in engineering speak. So you think engineering is engineering, but company by company is very different. So the art of negotiation, which I never knew I had a skill set or a bone in my body that could do that because... I was never very good at just agreeing with somebody. I really love conflict and arguments. We can talk about that later. But, you know, just um, being able to, to, to have those discussions and finally reach an agreement um, was, was very interesting. The other thing was just the different ways that we do business as companies. The other part is just how differently we do business as organizations. Um, and the way that we interact with our supply base as well. Um, it, was, it was really interesting to see how these two worlds came together and, you know, the clashes that we had as a result of that and the misunderstandings that happened. We would all, in, from a Japanese company, we're very, very formal. So meetings are conducted very formally, but meetings are conducted just as a formal confirmation. The real meetings and discussions happen before and after the meeting. So we would sit in the meeting and agree to X, Y, and Z, but maybe we didn't really agree. And we'd come back and have a secondary discussion or a third discussion. So just to, first of all, watch this dynamic between the executives of both companies, because I was still very young, I was only in my late 20s, was just really interesting. And to have a seat at that table at that age, the amount I learned was amazing. I would have never had that kind of responsibility in a larger company or a more established company. But, you know, to be able to sit there and then explain how the target performances were going to be assessed and how we were going to manage the development of the vehicle, um, it just, I, I became very mature very quickly. And uh, 
found that I really liked having those kinds of discussions. And, and I learned a tremendous amount sitting at those tables. This episode is brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. It's time for you to drive employee engagement, amp up your leadership message, and inspire your business and your team with your very own internal podcast. We're combining our leadership skills and our podcasting skills to help you put together a strategy, an episode design, a theme design, and yes, we'll provide you with those metrics that you crave. The link is in the show notes. Um, but it, to say that it wasn't wrought with tension, I mean, there was a lot of tension. There were a lot of tense times, despite the fact that we Nissan was in charge of R&D. The Ford R&D teams were very much involved because it was Ford, like, Ford in-house suppliers, for the most part, that were supplying the components. It was before the divestiture of Visteon, et cetera. So everything was almost in-house on both sides. And then to say that they had responsibility for manufacturing, we had our own manufacturing group located with us in our R&D center that was also down at the plant, you know, looking at the quality and assessing. So it was truly, you know, a, a combined process with two different ways melding together to create the product itself. Um, during the launch period, probably... There was probably 20 of us that virtually lived at the plant to, to get the vehicle out the door. And there were typically big discussions every single day about, you know, the quality level. The quality level was really important, especially for, for us, because it was our first, it was our first product that was going to be built in the United States and sold there. Um, so, and that we developed and, and we wanted it to be perfect. And of course, Ford did too. It was just different ways of measuring it and different ways of handling issues on the assembly line. We did, we never, Nissan and the Japanese never dealt with the union before, you know, so here we were in a union plant. So it was just all these things coming together that, you know, now that I look back at it, it's amazing we had the product that we did. It was as good as it was and that it, you know, lasted well over 10 years before we canceled the model. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, we started developing more products for Nissan and started hiring more and more people. And, you know, we quickly had to build our own new office that would house, now there's over 1,100 people in that R&D center developing all the vehicles that we manufacture in the U.S. So, um, you know, it was an ever-evolving process, but that particular project was probably one of the most interesting and exciting ones that I, I worked on, and it also gave me a background for later in my career when I um, led M&A in Japan and some of our big joint ventures there. Had I not seen these culture clashes and understood what was really going to be coming in the discussions from that early um, time period, I would have had to have been learning it again. So what happens then? So you launch this vehicle and then what? <laughs> well, it was far from over because we had to continue doing model year changes and full model you know, changes. We went through two full model cycles before the project was canceled. Um, from there, I really started getting much more involved with the program management side of the business, assessing the product, um, running a group that at that time we just kind of called vehicle development, vehicle program management, which kept everything on track quality issues, anything, certification, everything came through my office. So, and, and then we also had marketability. So anything that came in from the field, we had to assess from a customer viewpoint and, and let the design engineer know, yeah, this is an issue. We need to fix it. Um, so it, it, it just broadened from there. Um, and I moved into management roles throughout Nissan there in the test group primarily until about 2000, 2000 fall time. I remember this so well because my kids had just started school 
And I got a call from the president of the company. And he said, I want to see you in my office as soon as you can get here. So of course, here I am still very young and nervous as, as heck. So I walk up to his office and he says, Carla, I want you to start three new divisions, three new departments for, for R&D, vehicle program management for all of design and test, not just test for the whole company, corporate planning and um, vehicle quality departments. And I had never, ever worked in any of those areas. So, but my answer was, Yes, I can do that. And he said, I want to have, I want you to think about it. I want you to have a proposal on my desk within a week, no later. Okay. So the first thing I did, and you may find this very funny. The first thing I did was I walked out of the building and went to my car and I cried. Because I, the immediate thought was, I'm really bad at development. He wants to move me out. <laughs> I didn't think it was an opportunity. I thought I just was really bad at what I was doing. So once I got myself under control, then I went back in. And the first, first thing I had to do was just move my office. I had to move to a different place. So I thought, I'm just going to stay calm and, and move to this new area. And of course, I was getting three people who were already involved in that work from the design side. That's the only people that I was given, but I did ask to take one person with me from the test group, which was approved. But I just started to think about how these different groups were going to be formed. What would be the objective? What was the reason for doing it? And um, had the proposal on his desk with an organizational proposal as well, although it grew much over the years, and just went forward with it. And it ended up, you know, now vehicle program management manages everything throughout the whole company. There's about 20 people in that group. Um, vehicle quality also. Now there's one for every um, commodity on the vehicle, a person assigned, and corporate planning is still quite small with about four people, but it handles all of the workforce, workload, forecasting, etc. Set up all the systems and metrics. I didn't do this all myself. I had a lot of very smart people because I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. So I make sure I'm surrounded by people who are much better at the things I'm not good at. And, and that's, you know, the next phase of the story. Um, <laughs> Then the next phase, and, and it's very similar in tone, We the, a new president came to um, Nissan Technical Center North America because we changed names from Nissan R&D to Nissan Technical Center North America. And this was right after Carlos Ghosn had taken over and we formed the merger with Renault. And we started these um, groups called CFTs, cross-functional teams. And they started first in Japan there was about 12 of them, and their whole focus was to assess and recommend ways to save money because Nissan was in a lot of trouble. Um, and you had to report directly to Carlos Ghosn every single month, and he would decide if your proposal was okay, and if he said it was okay, it went forward regardless who liked it and they didn't like it. So this new president came and he, again, same thing, called me in his office, had to see me immediately and said, we're starting cross-functional team number four, which is R&D. I want you to run it. So, of course, I said, okay, <laughs> not knowing what it would be. And his words to me um, was, I strongly recommend that you decide who you want on that team and get approval to get them on your team because Every person who's being asked to be a pilot of one of these is being asked today. And all the good people, because you know in every company, it's always the same people that always get chosen for these things because you know they're going to deliver. Um, get them on your team right away. So I did, had a great team. Our team was the first one to make a proposal to Carlos Ghosn, and I ended up making three during my stint as that, uh, as the pilot. And... Probably within two years after that, I get the call from head of HR asking me to go to Japan and become a program director for trucks and SUVs globally. 
position never done by a female, a position never done by a non-Japanese. So, of course, I didn't say yes right away this time because I had I had four children, a husband, and many things to think about when you think about making a move like that. And so my spouse has always been my, my greatest advocate and a supporter, and I called him, and he didn't even blink. He said, we're going. Let's go. And so I said, are you sure? Are you really sure? <laughs> but yeah, I, we took the opportunity. So I went to Japan, and uh, it was supposed to be two years. It was an opportunity for three. I was there five, uh, from 2006 to 2011. was in charge of trucks and SUVs globally, which put me on the opposite side of engineering. Even though it had part engineering, it put me on really the profit and cost management side of the entire program. And all of our funds to do the program developments, I had to go before the executive committee of Nissan, which at the time was Carlos Ghosn, Saikawa-san, um, Chiga-san, all of you know the top executive team. So a whole new world, whole new way of, of thinking, being in Japan in the heartbeat of the company. I think I grew up, I can't tell you how much I grew up during that time period, just being in the heat of things, having that kind of responsibility. While there, I directly reported to Carlos Tavares, who's now the head of uh, Stellantis. And then after he moved back to or moved over to the U.S., I reported directly to Andy Palmer, who was the ex-CEO of, um, of uh, Aston Martin. So I just have, I had so many wonderful leaders to watch and, you know, try to try to learn from during my days in Japan. Well, even before that, um, we can get into mentorship and things later if you'd like. But um, went there and was there during the economic crisis. So on top of having, you know, this program director role, I ended up just getting crazy jobs there. I ended up being the head of HR for all of the planning group that was tacked onto my title. So HR in Japan, really interesting. Um, I also was put on the recovery committee during the economic crisis because we needed to find any way to save money or be able to bring extra money in. And during that time is when I proposed creating a new group, which became a business unit. It's still part of Nissan that is always looking for these synergies with other companies, either to help offset development costs and or, you know, allow us to have excess revenues by sharing our platforms or our components with another manufacturer. And I was put in charge of the strategic alliance alliance with Daimler which existed until just last year. It's, it's pretty much going to be dissolved. And also at that point, doing a strategic partnership with Mitsubishi, who is now part of the Renault-Nissan Alliance. So that negotiation skill was put to good practice doing some of those things. Well, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's quite a career, and we're not we're not done yet. We're not done, and then from there, I came back and was head of R and D for North and South America for um, for Nissan, and did that for a little over three years. Um, from there, it was 2014, and I retired from Nissan. And within within a year, I was um, working in academia. I went to, to Ohio State. They were looking for somebody. Um, to come in and do mobility research, business development for them. Again, a white sheet of paper. Nobody had ever done this job before. And they wanted me to look at everything related to mobility in the entire university, everything from eco-skeletal work up through drones, because they have their own airport there too, and come up with one or two big ideas we could work on collectively as a university. And of course, get money to do that research along with it. And honestly speaking, because I've always loved working with young people, always loved mentoring, always loved learning. Um, if I was going to have a secondary option, it was going to be in academia or in a research type position. So I did that and I, I really loved it. Um, 
I loved working with the students. I started what's now known as Drive Ohio in Ohio. I uh, led the Columbus Smart City Challenge, which Columbus won the money from the Department of Transportation. Um, but academia is very, very cumbersome and slow. Um, you know, it takes forever to get a decision. Um, for somebody coming from industry, that part was tough. But working with the students, oh my gosh, they were amazing. I have never had so much fun and had such such great staff. And they were only working for me part-time. And you know, we pay students, you know, working on campus. It's, it's nothing, but they just... They were amazing, and I still uh, follow um, all of them that work for me. Um, they often communicate back and forth. So just wonderful experience. But then I was asked to go to the Center for Automotive Research, which in my mind is the best blend of academia and industry. And uh, also got me back to Michigan, which Michigan is home where three of my four kids live. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, again, this was another big challenge for me because, you know, coming into an organization, every time you come into an organization, it's a challenge because the people don't know you, you don't know them, you have to get to know them. And then how you handle that, those first few days are vitally important. And this particular group was renowned. It's a world-class organization with some very intelligent people. So I was a you know, I was a little bit nervous, quite frankly, because of the reputation and I didn't want to do anything to upset that. I certainly knew I wasn't smarter than any of them. So, you know, had to find a way to come in and, and assess and, and then begin to guide, you know, as best I could to get the company ready to move on and, and continue to support the industry as we've been doing so well for so many years, but not just the automotive industry, but we needed to be thinking about the mobility industry, the communications industry, all the, you know, all the corollary industries that are now part of mobility. So that's my story. <laughs> that is a fascinating story. Now, as head of the car organization, you have a pretty important conference coming up in August. Tell us a little bit about that conference, and particularly now that we're in a, you know, I would, I, is it too soon to say post-pandemic, but a end of pandemic kind of time frame. So tell us more about the conference. I mean, I've heard about MBS over the years, the management briefing sessions, and I attended many, many years ago. And years ago, it had a reputation of being a little bit stuffy. And I've heard that over the last several years, that's changed significantly. So what's going on with this conference, Carla? Well, I was also an attendee for several years. And uh, yes, it was getting stuffy and getting stuffier. Um, and as I began to look at, um, you know, some of the other conferences, CES, um, I had been to several out in the Silicon Valley. I had been to several through TRB um, and saw the dynamic and how sometimes a more relaxed atmosphere really, really provided a lot better conversation and business discussions. Um, I really wanted to have that same kind of aura uh, associated with MBS. MBS has been in existence for 55 years. I mean, it's long, long standing even before the Center for Automotive Research existed. Um, it had started as part of uh, the University of Michigan under Dave Cole, the, the first CEO. Um, so it has very, you know, a very storied history, so to speak. So I wanted to preserve that, but at the same time, I wanted to modernize it and have those discussions that weren't what we what we get at a lot of conferences that are commercials or advertisements. I wanted to talk about the issues, make sure we had the right panelists there without regard to what the title was, what their title was. I wanted to make sure they were the right person who could talk about that subject intelligently, debate it, not and not be hindered so much by by what, you know, the script said. Um I also wanted to make sure that there was a lot of diversity 
And of course, that means, of course, gender and, and nationality, et cetera. But beyond that, it's a diversity of thought to make sure you have the right panels. And the panels themselves, I didn't want to just take last year's template and keep cookie cutting it because the industry was not staying staying um, stationary. We we're moving forward. So what are those hot issues that we really need to be talking about. What are those that, yes, people want to hear about, but maybe they don't want to hear about every year. Maybe every other year is okay if we supplement it with other things. Um, and how can we make it more rapid? Because, you know, two-hour sessions in this day and age is unheard of, and, and people just don't have the patience or the time for that. So make it more rapid, but make it as deep. And, and as more as much knowledge as can be imparted. So those are the kinds of changes that I really sought to, to put into the program to for everybody to come out of there thinking differently um, and, and challenging themselves even more. Our industry needs more challenge. It needs um, more rapidity. Um, and it needs to have these discussions more and more, especially as technology just keeps changing um, so rapidly. Carla, are you trying to break a mold? <laughs> I think I've broken every one so far, you know, <laughs> in my life. I love to break molds. And, you know, the only way to, to see if something is going to work is to give it a whirl. If it doesn't work, change it, you know, but you've learned something. But if you just stay with the same old, same old, you're going to die. Um, I mean, that's that's just the way organizations are going. You have to change yourself your customer is going to change. And if you don't change or evolve and give them what they're looking for, um, the future isn't very bright. There are CEOs out there in our beloved industry who would believe that the way that we've been doing things, and I'm speaking specifically to the leadership model, the way that we've been leading the industry is just fine and we're okay and we're making money. So we don't need to break it. No, mo no breaking the mold here. We just need to go back to the way that we did things before and everything's going to be okay. What would you say to that? I would say stop. <laughs> Seriously, stop um, and, and take a look at what's happening. Um, we have an entirely new workforce these days. Even people who have worked for your company for 30, 40 years are changed. You know, if you haven't changed from this pandemic, it's... It's shocking to me, even if you don't realize it yourself, you've changed. Um, I know when it first, when the pandemic first started, I said, I cannot work from home. I never can work from home. And now, you know, I work from anywhere and I would have never done this before. Um, I felt very, you know, regimented in my way. And I found that, you know, I can be just as productive another way. But if you're not going to adapt to the way people have changed. You're not going to have people anymore because they're going to be able to find options in other places to go and, and get the quality of life they desire. Um, and I don't even want to talk about the millennials because we know, you know, the millennials disrupted, but when you start looking at the Gen Ys and then the Gen Zs, that's another totally new way of thinking about things. And they've lived through crises that other, um, other population segments have not. And you're just not going to be able to, able to attract people. And if you insist that everybody return back to the way it was before, you're going to end up in an employment crisis um, because people have lots of options today about where they can go. Yeah, you're right. And Gen Z is not going to tolerate the more traditional command and control model that we uh, cling on to in the automotive industry. I'm sure I'm going to be, I'll get a lot of email back from that statement, but that's okay. So let's talk about authentic leadership. As you know, something that I care passionately about is authentic leadership. And gravitas is the hallmark of authentic leadership. And I believe we need a whole lot of gravitas in the automotive industry. And we, the, I believe that this is an opportunity for authentic leadership to come center stage and thrive. And now is the time to do it. In your words and your experience, what is authentic leadership to you? 
for me, it's can be summed up as doing the right thing. Um, and I know that sounds very vague, but um, always saying what you believe, always marching the path of what you're speaking. Um, if you say something, do it. If you promise something, deliver it. Um, it's no different being an employee versus, you know, being, a, you know, a supervisor. It's, it's very much the same. Having that respect for others. If you respect them, you will get respect back. Um, finding a way to communicate. But first and foremost is listening. You have to listen 80% and talk 20 if that if that number is even correct. Um, I will always sit and listen and listen and listen. And I don't speak unless I feel like I have something important to say um, in all of you know my outside boards and things like that. I'm not going to be the one that's just going to hog the conversation. I listen, I listen, absorb data, and then I make my recommendation or suggestion. Um, I think the other thing is knowing what you don't know and not being afraid of what you don't know. Um, so many, I think so many people get wrapped up and I'm the expert. I have to know the answer to everything, but it's okay as a leader to say, I really, I have an idea. This is my idea, but I'm sure you have a better idea. And if we think about it together, we'll be able to find a solution. But honestly, I don't have an easy answer to this. And I've been faced with that a lot during even this pandemic. At first it was, are we going to close the office? I don't know. I don't know what everyone else is doing. Let me think about that. Are we going to open the office? No, I don't think so until I know what I'm supposed to do because I don't know what I have to do. So, you know, it, it, it's that kind of honesty that, you know, promotes good discussion. Um, you can be a leader. You can guide and advise, support you end up making the ultimate decision, but you're listening and you're taking in all the different, you know, information that you can, and then you make a decision. Um, I think you can see evidence of authenticity when you see somebody taking a new role. Um, there are people who come in and immediately make their assessment and start changing people and start changing rules. And they probably don't even know how that particular department ever existed. And, you know, if you're an authentic leader, you're going to come in and you're going to spend two weeks to a month just talking and listening and understanding what that group does, what the complexities and the personalities of that group are like, so that when you do make those decisions, you're really looking at it holistically about the best way to go forward. So, yeah, for me, this is all being authentic. I I agree with you. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen that play out when a new person, a new leader comes into an organization and they're concerned about fitting the mold. They have this idea of what they think leadership should be in their head. And oftentimes it's, it's tough, it's yeah. aggressive, and it's, you know, get in there, take charge, show who's boss, make a decision, whack a couple of people. And they're concerned about impressing the boss. Mm -hmm. And they're concerned about impressing their peers. Or even worse, they're concerned about making their peers look bad and making themselves look good and playing the gotcha games in the in the conference rooms. We've seen that play out a number of mm -hmm. times. And... And it doesn't do anybody any good. Whereas deep down inside, oh, there's some insecurity there. And it shows right away. And people can tell. They can feel that. They can sense it. And what happens when a new leader comes into an organization and they start to behave that way? You withdraw. If you're reporting to that person, you start to be, oh, okay, I got to be careful with this person. I don't know that I'm going to share everything. Yep. So you start to withdraw, you start to disengage. And then trust starts to erode. And then you go down into a toxic culture. I've seen that play out time and time again. And you're right, authentic leadership is about, let's talk about when you start with an organization, shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. 
(laughs) And be comfortable enough in your own skin to know that you are good at what you do. And other people will see that over time. But you have to create a safe environment for people. You have to bring people in to you. You have to uh, use, you know, what I would call the, the force of gravitas, not gravity, to bring people in to you so that you can create a high-performance team. But so often, Carla, people just feel that if they come in and they listen and they're quiet, that that's a sign of weakness. And it so isn't. And there's so much work that we have to do to get that message out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, even after that initial time, you still have to listen because things happen, people change, situations come up in the company. And if people feel like they can't come and talk to you openly, then you're not going to be in the heartbeat of the company. And if you're not in the heartbeat of the company, um, there's a problem. There are walls up. People won't talk to you about certain things. Um, When I was in the team at Nissan, in Japan or in the U.S., I can't tell you the number of time executives higher than me would come to me and say, you know, so-and-so, they're not performing like they should be. What's going on? You have any idea? I'd be like, well, yeah, they have a son that's having trouble in school. So they're probably not focused like they should be. They'd be like, how do you know that? Because I talk to them. I see them in the little store down buying a sandwich. I see them in the lunch line because I never let any, no matter how high I got up in the company, nobody ever bought my lunch. I was in the cafeteria with everybody else talking and seeing what was going on. And I sat with everybody else at lunch. I didn't go sit anywhere else um, because that's how you get to know people. Or I just walk through the, the, the laboratory and just talk to people. But it, w- it was always interesting to me how all these executives would come to me. And, and finally, one day I said, how come you guys always come to me? Well, because you always know. We don't know. And I said, well, why don't you know? Why don't you take time, you know, to talk to people? And it, it, they would get this expression on their face like, oh, that sounds troubling, you know, and, and so they would just, it was easier to just go ask Carla. You know, she knows, she talks to people. <laughs> but, yeah, because they're afraid to ask people how they feel. Yeah. And I talked about that a number of times. I call it my favorite F-bomb. Go out there and ask somebody how they feel. Because, you know, if you have a group of people that are not engaged, that they're working in an, in a company of fear or just do it and, and be quiet, um, your company's not going to grow. It'll be profitable, but it's not going to grow. And you're not going to get the best out of people. And you're not going to get people that are staying because they want to be there every single day and give you 80%. Because 80% is a darn good percentage. Yeah, I, I think this is such a great opportunity for automotive to infuse and inject a whole new sense of energy and possibility and life and Quite frankly, I think that the conference is is pivotal. I think it's going to be a turning point. It's a great opportunity for people to put distance between the past and the pandemic and start afresh with a restart. And I've been uh, reading some research recently that talks about the importance of the restart. Because if you think about it, there's, you know, Mondays, we start a new week, we start a new month, we start a new quarter, we say things, well, after my birthday, I'm going to do this, right? Uh, You know, New Year's, I'm going to do this. There's psychological, there's power behind that. It it can be transformative. So the, the conference being in August, we could say, all right, the pandemic is behind us. This is a restart. This is where we're able to put distance to the past and start anew. And I am thrilled to be taking the stage on day one of the event and talking about authentic leadership. And I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am that it's a hybrid event and there will be real life human beings there. Uh, what's what's the thought behind that between the hybrid event? Well, we you know we want everybody there in person. And when we started planning this, quite frankly, we weren't certain what the laws were going to be, how many people would be able to get there. I mean, normally we have between 800 and 1,000. And that just seemed, oh my goodness, knowing the space there and how close we are, it just seemed to stretch. 
And we also knew budgets would be tight still. Some people would not be comfortable traveling. So we said, let's do a hybrid. Let's do it in person and and let's have people join virtually. Now I can tell you at this point in time, 96% or more are coming in person. People really want to get back out there. They want to talk face-to-face. By the way, I had my first face-to-face meeting yesterday, um, shook hands, was able to chat, see their face, their full face. It was the best meeting I have had in months. I'll tell you, I just... For me, I've missed that desperately um, because I can't sense people if I can't see their whole body. You know, on Zoom, many times we we don't even show our faces. I, and I do, regardless how awful I look. If you saw me yesterday, I was jogging and I was a mess, but I don't care. I'm showing my face. Um, I, I just think it's important. But to be able to also see the body, the body language, the tilting, the crossed arms, the the comfort level, the openness um, is really, really important. So yes, people want to get back out face-to-face. I hope we will have some of the best conversations ever because we really, as you rightly say, we have a chance now to change things and start up and, and think differently and act differently and behave differently as an organization or as the mobility space. We have the opportunity to change things We were able to change things in nanoseconds during the pandemic. Let's not go back to taking years. You know, we will, we'll go, we can't revert back or our industries, quite frankly, it's in trouble. Um, We need to be aware of who the competition is, how quickly they're moving, what our customers demanding of us, what our employees are demanding of us. And, you know, be ready to move with those ideas and realize it's not a one one size fits all. It's really not. And these younger people that we're getting, let's face it, they've had every opportunity. They could do anything they wanted. Their schedules were packed morning till night. Um, they don't hesitate to argue with us. I can tell you a younger employee, if they don't like what you're saying or they don't agree with what you're saying, they don't hesitate to tell you. Um, and I think it's great because I love these ideas and I need them to, to change my mind and make us do something that maybe makes us uncomfortable, but we need to do it. And you can always change it. This is, this is one of the fears I think a lot of leaders have. If I, if I let this happen, it's going to be that way forever. No, if it doesn't work, you can change it. I mean, look how you run your household. You don't make a rule and it's that way till you die. You know, you can change it if you have to. So we need to be very flexible and not let fear or protocol um, guide the way we want to behave. And at MBS, we're going to have these conversations and more. We're going to talk about future-proofing and risks in the industry today, supply chain risks. We're going to talk about what's happening political, trade and tariffs. All of it is going to be in there. The electrification, are we really going to be all electric by 2030? So many of these hot topics we're going to delve into, and I hope, you know, not just during the sessions, but during the the um, receptions in the evening, during breakfast in the morning, let's continue to debate these. This is not a one time and done. We have to keep living this for, you know, until we have MBS again in 2022. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get into all the conversations, let, let alone the deliver the keynote. It, it's about the conversations and the collaboration that's going to take place when we're there. That's going to be great. You're going to kick us off perfectly. I know it. I've seen you speak, and I think ah. everybody after your introduction, I'm going to be a little bit scared to come up and do Q and A with you. But you know, I'll, I'll manage somehow. And uh, but it's going to get everybody in the right frame of mind to really, really make the sessions what we need them to be. Yeah, and you've got some great speakers there too. You've got two of my favorites. I know Cheryl Thompson uh, is a moderator and she's the thought leader in the DEI space in the industry, which we love the work that she's doing. And Jessica Robinson, who happens to be one of my personal favorites, one of the smartest people I've ever met, quite frankly, in the mobility space. So you've got a great lineup of speakers. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. And you'll uh, see some of the names that you just gave too are actually going to be moderating. This year we decided, it doesn't have to all be car people doing the moderating. Let's let's get some people here that are prominent in the space to ask some of the questions. And, 
you know, be able then to lead some of the dialogue, like I mentioned before, after the event or in the evening or whatever. Um, really opening the door to, again, <laughs> changing the way things have always been done, but uh, but needed needed changes, I believe, to get the conversations at the level we need them. Yeah, well, I'm all about breaking the mold of corporate <laughs> leadership, Carla, and we are definitely going to do that in Traverse City in August. Uh, but I have to ask you, we've talked about authentic leadership, and you know that I define gravitas as the hallmark of authentic leadership. So what is gravitas to you when a leader has gravitas? How do you know? It's hard to say. I mean, I think you can sense it and you can see it in what they do, Um I can tell you what it's not. It's not somebody who's pompous, who's a braggart, who is directive, but it's somebody who is a collaborator, somebody who at the end of the day says, gee, I get, did good. I did good for the company today. I did good for this person today. Um, I'm leading the company in the right direction. Um, everything that came out of my mouth was true. And I meant it, and I'm going to still, I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's hard to judge that from the exterior. I think if you have a, a leader with gravitas that you work for, and it, if you do, you're very lucky because it's really hard to achieve that level. Um, you're going to feel valued. You're going to want to work for that person. You're going to want to give them everything you can give them. Um, you're going to be challenged by that person. It doesn't mean you're friends with that person. You may not even like them very much, but you're going to respect them and you're going to love what you do. You're going to know your voice matters. Um, you're going to see adaptability depending on the need. Um, you're going to see openness to new ideas, openness to risk um, and support if you fail. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. It's like trust. Trust is an emotion. It's a feeling. It's right. a feeling. Yeah, that's right. Well, you talked a lot about uh, Gen Z, and you're right. Gen Z certainly have, they have no problem asking the tough question. And I, I love that. What advice would you have, would you give to yourself age 25? So if you could talk to 25-year-old Carla right now, what would you tell her? Oh, gosh. Um, first thing I would say is, be, let me just put a little context around this. At 25, I was a, uh, what, a, I'd been in industry since I was 18, um, including my co-op days with GMI. And I was probably one of, I don't know how many women engineers, very few, constantly being challenged. Um, it was not a good environment in those days for a, a, a woman in the industry. Um, deciding really what was important to me and what things I was going to let roll off. Because if I didn't let some things roll off, I was going to end up with a huge chip and I wouldn't be a pleasant person. Um, realizing that my path was to be technically competent, but knowing that I probably wasn't as technically competent as I should have been or I could have been. So I didn't have a lot of confidence. Going back, I would tell that that 25-year-old, you are as confident as every other 25-year-old person in this company, male, female, whatever. Don't hesitate to ask the questions. Don't feel bad and, and replay situations where you think you asked something stupid or didn't do something right because I always wanted to be right. I always wanted to have the right answer and I hated to be wrong and I would just beat myself up relentlessly about it. If I could have all that time back that I spent ruining over what I thought I said something stupid in a meeting or, you know, I did something wrong, um, I could have been so much more efficient back then. And now I don't worry an iota about it, but I spent too much time doing that then. I wish I could tell her, get your confidence, you know, be clear, speak up. You know, it, it, if you make a mistake, 
shrug it off, say, I'm sorry, I'll fix it and go on. Because really that's all your manager ever wants to hear is, yeah, I muffed up, I'll fix it, I'll have it back on your desk. You know, they they don't think about it like you think they're thinking about it, you know, like it's unrecoverable because you screwed up. So I, those are the things. Don't rue, don't spend that time. It's It's dear time, precious time. Don't waste it thinking you did something silly. Yes, you're absolutely right. I did the same thing, ruminating over what was said and what yeah. was done and what I should have done and should have said and what will this person think and what will that person think. And that's all bullshit. It really is. You don't have to worry about it. And guess what? You can't control what other people think. And you definitely can't control what they and do. And worried about <laughs> what somebody said about what you wore, you know, even yes, that. Yes. And I have a great story. Do you remember when the candy shoes were the in thing, the slides with the super high heels? And of course, everybody had to wear them. And I was working, it was during my co-op days, and I was working in the executive offices in the PR department. And we had this winding marble staircase that came down the middle of the executive offices. This was back in the days of pomp and circumstance. And I'm coming down there to greet a guest at the visitor desk. I somehow slipped, fell down in front of all the executives on the first floor who were standing there chatting about something. Here this young thing comes down the floor. I I think I fell five or six steps, you know, just slid right down. And I must have worried about that for a month. But, you know, the funny thing was they were all worried, was I okay? And then after that, it was like we were all good friends. You know, I had broken the ice, literally broken the ice by falling down the stairs with all of these executives. But I was so mortified. You know, I thought I had just ruined my entire career for life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I I got one little story that I will tell about that. I was just telling this the other day to the accountability lab was working third shift down in uh, GKN Manufacturing down in uh, North Carolina. And I was uh, running uh, production, production control manager. And they said, oh, you know, you just spend any time with third shift. You've got to spend time with third shift. I said, okay. So I worked third shift for a week, which I will never do again. I have a lot of appreciation for people who work third shift now. So... Um, lots of, uh, at the time, back in the day, I was a smoker. So lots of Marlboro lights and coffee later, you know, I'm walking through the shop floor with the third shift supervisor talking to everybody. And I thought, okay, that's great. I'm doing a great job. Right. And he says to me, um, I said, so how'd I do, you know, did I do okay? And he says, yeah, he goes, it's, it's just one thing. I goes, and I couldn't really tell you out there. And I'm like, what? I was like, what are you going to say? He said, you're, your zipper, your fly was undone the entire time you were out there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Yeah, on the shop that floor happened. too. Great. <laughs> Just great. On third shift? <laughs> really? Oh, but it, it did actually happen. It did oh. actually happen. Oh. So, are you crying? I am crying. I know people can't see you right now. You're crying. She's <laughs> crying laughing. <laughs> All right, we need to take a person, just a personal turn here before we close out our time together today. Uh, you've had such a successful career. You know a thing or two about being successful in life, both professionally and in your personal life. So how do you start your day? How do you set your day up for success? What's your morning routine look like? Well, I usually start the night before, I'll be honest, because I'm one of those people that Whenever I have a problem or need to think about something, if I look at it before I go to bed, magically my brain thinks about it while I'm sleeping. And I'll wake up in the morning and have all kinds of thoughts typically. So I look the night before, what's my calendar? And I get myself mentally prepared for the day. But I always start the morning the same way with exercise. Um, I get up early and just go walk, walk on the treadmill, walk outside, whatever it is. And that gets my blood going. And uh, one cup of coffee is all I need. I don't need a lot of caffeine. Um, And then I just go headstrong into the day. And what I, if I don't take the time to look at my calendar the night before, I can guarantee you the next day, because I have meetings back to back, the next day I'll go in and it'll be, why am I in this meeting? What's going on? You know, and I hate to be that kind of person. I want to be prepared. I want to know why I'm there, have read the agenda and be ready to just, you know, 
dig in and, and whatever the problem is, roll up my sleeves and, and, and get going. So that's how my morning starts. And then I have meetings all day. Um, I usually try to now, especially during the pandemic, I get up and I walk. I'm also a jogger. I usually do that at night. Um, and on the weekends, I run quite a bit. Um, all the exercise I can get in is great. I also end every day with a crossword puzzle and a Sudoku. I, I have to do that for my brain every day. That's how I relax. I, people find that funny, you know, crossword puzzles and Sudoku make you relax, but they do. Um, I need that at the end of every day to just discharge. And uh, that's it, you know. Um, and now well, I'm an empty nester, so I really only have to worry about myself. <laughs> yeah, I did not expect to hear the Sudoku coming, but that's interesting. <laughs> and Ken okay. Ken, too. If you've never done Ken Ken and you like number puzzles, that's a great one. <laughs> All right. Uh, not for me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I have to tell you, uh, Carla, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I can tell that you and I are going to infuse excitement, passion, and energy into this industry. And we're going to do it <laughs> on stage in August in Traverse City. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, today. it's been a, a real pleasure. And I can't wait. I almost wish we could go there now. And, you know, keep this momentum going. But we're going to spark them in the morning for sure. Yes. Yes, we are. We are. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much, Jan. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Mm-hmm.